Le fait des planètes, la fin terre, une lune, des maisons. Monosan, Logatiet, Prata Prechan, Prai. Deus, il est créé au monde et il est notre pai aussi. Notre Vater im Himmel, da wo unsere Sünde befreit hat, er sorgt für uns. God is the only God. And he wants to tell us all about him. Because he loves us. Deus é il est pai de Jesus. Jésus, il est fort, il nous protège. Du kannst nicht operieren, nicht umarmen, aber man fühlt im Herz wirklich, dass er tot ist. Deus, er muss bei. Jesus ist Gottes one true son. Gott trägt man zu seinem Kreuz am Lohn. Good morning. How's everybody? Excited that you uh, came to church today. My name's Danny, if you've never seen me before. Uh, I am uh, one of the pastors here at Kesed, and uh, I'm so, so excited to launch this uh, brand new series with you today called Crimson. And I'm going to explain in today's talk really what that's about and what it's going to look like. We're going to be, if you have a Bible, in the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 9. So you can turn there now or turn there later. Uh, that's fine. But we're going to pick back up in our, in our uh, biographical study of really Paul and this book and what it really says for us in our journey uh, with the Lord. Amen? Amen? Amen. So let me pray for us and then we'll just jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for every person in this room. Thank you that Uh, they overcame distractions, overcame excuses, overcame reasons not to be here today in your house learning, thinking, and worshiping you. I thank you, Lord, that all of our stories really are tied to what it is you're doing on this planet for your kingdom. And I'm so honored, God, to get to be a part of that along with these wonderful people. And I ask that in this room, uh, you would just give us a sense of your presence, a sense of of what it is you want to accomplish, that any agenda would be set down and that, Lord, we could just learn from you, be ministered uh, to by you and spend some time just engaging in who you are and who you want us to be. I thank you, Father. I lift your name above all that is said. Amen. 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 The video you just saw, I, I thought was just a great video because as we talk a little bit today about faith and sort of what it is God has for you, 
uh, the Bible talks a lot about children. It talks a lot about the kind of faith they have, the kind of rest they have, that things are just going to be okay, that, that their parents, you know, if they're functioning as healthy parents, are going to make sure things happen for them. And they just live their lives playing and engaging and having relationship and making new friends and really just living a fairly carefree life. Again, a child that is living within a healthy environment. This video, uh, for all intents and purposes, really is the goal of our faith. It's to have faith like that, to say things like, God is our protector. God made all the animals and all the people and all the stars. God is big. God is powerful. God is strong. These simple phrases uh, uttered by children are believed by children, but oftentimes in our own faith journey, when we utter them, we say them, and we, we want to mean them, but let's be real. Life has worn us down, and things have happened that have reminded us, and maybe even today are still reminding us, that, that sometimes it doesn't seem like God is very strong, like God is very big, like God is very powerful, and like God will protect us. That today is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what it really means to engage with God like a child would, to rely upon him no matter our circumstances. And we're going to see it through the conversion of Saul, who most of the time we talk about as Paul. So let me tell you a quick story just to set the stage for how this is going to work. Uh, some of you know, over this last week, I was fortunate enough to fly with my girls, my wife and our two daughters that uh, live with us. My son's already moved out, graduated from college. So the four of us flew down to Disneyland to spend a few days there. And all of us had been to Disneyland in the family except for my youngest, my 14-year-old, Elena. She'd never been, nor had she ever been on a roller coaster. So a few months prior to us making this trip, um, Elena came to me and she said, listen, I'm, I don't know about this roller coaster thing. And I said, why not? And she goes, I mean, I want to do it so bad. All my friends have done it, but I just don't know. And I looked at her and I said, Elena, don't worry about it. It's all going to be good. Everything's going to be fine. We get on the plane, we're flying, we get into the park, and the whole time all she's talking about is the roller coasters, and I don't know if I can do this, and I want to do it, but I don't know if I can, and, and eventually I've, I've got my arm around her, and I'm like, we're going to do this together, it's all good. In essence, what I'm saying is, I got you. We get to uh, a, di a bunch of different roller coasters, but her favorite one ended up being Splash Mountain. So we went on Splash Mountain, and we went on it multiple times over the few days that we were at the park because Elena found that, of course, nobody died on the roller coaster, which doesn't happen all that often, and that it was safe and that Dad was right. As a matter of fact, this is the last picture of the last night. We closed down Disneyland. I think we took this ride at 1145 of our family going down Splash Mountain, and I want you to zoom in on what my daughter who's in the front row's face looks like on this ride. <laughs> Nobody else's face looks like that. Just her. She's got this like, I got this. Legit. Right? And, and here's the thing. And, I, and, I, and I, she's going to end up watching this sermon, so I'll, I'll end up having to talk to her about this at lunch today. But here's the reality between you and me. I told her that I got her, Right? I told her everything's going to be fine, but if something wasn't fine on that ride, I don't got her. What am I going to do if that floating log comes off its rails as it's about to tumble down that waterfall? Am I just going to articulate it into not happening, right? Am I going to be like, no, log, here's three points why you shouldn't kill us. 
Am I going to use the massive strength that God has put inside my incredibly masculine body to stop it? <laughs> right? Am I going to leadership my way out of it? Like, you go left, you right. Nothing is going to happen but doom if that log goes off the rails. You know it, and I know it. As a matter of fact, all through our lives, we tell people, I got you. We got this. Let's do this. It's going to be okay. When in reality, it may not be. Now, we still are called to live our lives. And actually, Scripture even says, like this young girl right here, we're called to live our lives in faith that our Father in heaven, who says every minute and every second of the life you're living right now, you'll get Every minute and every second of the life you're living right now, you'll get. Nobody's taken any seconds or minutes from you. When it's your time, it's your time. But God can say, and he's the only one that can say, I got you. He's the only one that can say, it's going to be okay. He's the only one that can cause us to live our spiritual lives kind of like that. Because the reality, my friends, is doom happens. Sickness happens. Pain happens. Struggle happens, chaos happens. But this God that we serve, he says in his scripture, if you'll put your faith in me like a child, you can live your life with faith that, hey, whatever happens, it happens. <laughs> this is what this Crimson series is really about. On my office wall, I have a collection of encouraging verses and quotes. You can take that slide down. Encouraging verses and quotes. And, and on this, uh, inside this, uh, this, this collection, I've been printing and cutting and putting them up all over my office for the last few weeks. And Alyssa, uh, who assists and helps with all this stuff, has been like, every day she comes in, she's like, there's no more wall space. And I always find more wall space. So, so I'm only about 20% done, so eventually they're going to be hanging from the ceiling. But the purpose behind this was somewhat now in, in retrospect, preparation for this series. Because this series is about understanding the power God has when you believe the things God says to you. Now, this is some stuff that I have picked up from some leaders around me recently over the last two years. And some quotes they said, some quotes that I read, and some other few things that have brought encouragement to me. Uh, like we're going to see, Scripture will bring encouragement to us in a moment. Here's a couple encouraging quotes. One of them on my wall says, uh, it's the Mark Twain quote, quite well known. Originality is the art of concealing your source. Now, for some of you, you are like, I don't really know what that means. That's because you don't have to talk 45 weeks a year and come up with fresh content. And so as some of you will know, I will straight up pirate and steal even the most clever thing from the most famous person. I don't care at all. I sold something from a child at Sherry's one time that I heard in the booth behind me. I was like, that is an excellent point. And I wrote it down. <laughs> it's like, it's a true story. I was at a leadership retreat just prior to Disneyland and the guy said something and I said, profound, and I wrote it down, and the whole room went, you're not just going to take that, and I said, it's already stolen, right? Okay, it's just, it's, it's the reality. It's all been said anyways, people. Come on. I like this one. Often when you're at the end of something, you're at the beginning of something else. Maybe that encourages some of you. Often when you're at the end of something, you're at the beginning of something else, and then I love this one. It, uh, I, I think I heard it, I think I heard it in a movie Someone read it to their child, and then, and then I got lost because I wrote it down, and then I built a sermon around it that I'm going to share sometime later. But it's the Velveteen Rabbit, and he says, once you are real, you can't be unreal again. 
it lasts for always. I know all the moms in the room are like, oh, got me. Got me right there. It's the best church ever. (laughs) I stole it. I stole it. It's the way I said it, though, right? That was me. But I stole it. I stole it. Here's a couple encouraging verses, and I stole all these as well. Didn't write any of these myself. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Maybe this one will encourage you. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And just recently, I've loved Revelation 5.5. It's a well-known verse. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And of course, we know that to be Jesus. For a few years now, there's a verse in Isaiah that has continued to trickle out inside my sermons. Even when I don't write it in there, it just shows up because it impacted me in such a deep way quite a while ago, and it's Isaiah 118, when God is pondering with man, and he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. This, This verse just really clung to me when I read it. I read it the first time I remember as a teenager, and it just really was powerful for me because I felt like I was constantly making choices that were, you know, against what I believed was good and right and valuable. And I just, I remember really hearing this idea that, that I am crimson and that I've made crimson mistakes, but God wants to make me as white as freshly fallen snow, that he wants to purify who I am and what I'm about. All these quotes and verses really speak to what the series Crimson is about. And I'll put it on the screen. This series is about the power of our loving God and the encouragement that should bring. See, this isn't a series about your sin. This is a series about the way God uses your sin. It's a series about understanding that God knows all your secrets. He knows all the stuff that nobody else knows. He's never surprised by you. You're going to get every minute and second that you're supposed to, and you can either live it working against God's plan for your life, or you can live it surrendered to God's plan for your life. It's really up to you. This journey and how it's lived out in so many ways is really up to you. Because God wants to move inside the things in your life. But for most of you, you just think God wants to move inside 65 minutes on Sunday morning because this is when you're at your best behavior. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I get in trouble every time I do. But this is the best version of me you're ever going to get. Like, it only goes downhill from here. True story, right? I'm not going to slip up. I'm fairly dialed in. I'm rather focused. My wife cleanly pressed this shirt for me, right? These are my new jeans. It's about as good as it gets for Danny. And for some of you, you're like, that's so sad. (laughs) I'm so sad for him. That's it. That's all. But the reality is, most of us on our Sunday mornings, this is the best we get. This is the best Jan you're ever going to see in your whole life. It's just never going to get better than that. Is that that right, Jan? That's right. We, we perform, right? We show up and we perform is what I'm trying to say. And we dial in and we're like, how are you? Good to see you. Nice to meet you. Good morning, right? No one's like, ah, right? No one's frustrated, right? At least not in here, usually. It's when we leave that the, the rest of our life catches up. 
The truth is, God is in the rest of your life. He's in Sunday morning. But really, really, when you're going to church is when you go home and you sit with your child or you sit with your spouse or you go out to eat or you go to work. This is when the kingdom of God is being stirred up, is being moved. This is when you are being watched and looked at. This is when your life really, really has the chance to bear much fruit. In this room, you sit and listen. But out there, you're helping and serving and connecting, or at least you should be. God wants to use all of it because all of it is filled, including my own life, with mistakes, with brokenheartedness, with stuff I wish I wouldn't have done. And that's the stuff most of the time that keeps me from living my life like Elena on that roller coaster or those children in the video. The reason children walk around with so much joy is because they don't know they're not supposed to yet. Have you ever walked into a room and you're just, I've got accused of this a few times and I'm just having a great day and I'm somewhat loud and I'm pretty smiling. Someone's like, what are you smiling about? And you then think of it as a young man. You're like, I don't know. You're right. Life sucks. <laughs> right? Like you have to teach people, right? You have to, do you know that you're only born with two fears as a baby? Grab any baby in this room. You're only born with two fears. Every other fear you know of has been learned. You're only born with two fears. The fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. That's it. Everything else you learned. Someone said, be afraid of that. Someone said, watch out for that. You had an experience that taught you to, to be careful. Fear of noises, fear of falling, fear of loud noises, fear of falling. That's it. All the rest of it we picked up along the way. And what I'm trying to say is maybe it's time you picked up relationship with God along the way. Maybe it's time you engaged with him inside your story and it wasn't just a Sunday morning thing. Just something to think about between you and the Holy Spirit who I hope convicts you deeply as I move on in my sermon. Make them uncomfortable, Lord, so uncomfortable. Amen. Acts chapter 9, is we're going to talk about Paul, uh, who's also known as Saul. And let me correct a couple theological concerns I have with um, how sometimes we read scripture out of rhythm only instead of out of real context or reality. Uh, we who have been serving in the church or learning in the church or reading scripture for a long time know that oftentimes God changes people's names. He'll change Abram to Abraham or Sarai to Sarah and so on and so on and so on. Uh, Saul, who we're going to talk about in just a moment, who's also referred to as Paul, his name was never changed by God. There is nothing significant about that. We like to say, you're a Saul, but now you're a Paul. That doesn't mean anything. Okay, all it means is that Saul, which was his Hebrew name, and he was also a Roman citizen, so he has a Latin name, which is Paul. And I'm saying that because for those of you brand new to the story, you're going to hear me switch between Saul and Paul because the Bible switches between Saul and Paul. And what's so great about this is that Paul and Saul, the same guy, he's an expert when it comes to crimson. He's an expert when it comes to making some huge mistakes and God's still using him. And I think what's so profound, and you take this and unpack it. I'm not, I'm not here to teach this today. I'm here to just kind of pour this over you. What I love about this is God doesn't change his name. He takes them both. I'll take Saul, the Hebrew. I'll take Paul, the Roman citizen. It doesn't matter. I'm creating a whole new kind of person. So this New Testament post-Jesus writing of Saul and Paul is much more cultural than it is theological, but you could weave some theology into it if you like, because what's so great about it is God's merging both names 
into one person, into one story, into one act that he is going to lay out before humanity so that we can all learn something. So if you've told people or taught studies, Saul and Paul, you should stop because that's bad Bible, okay? Don't, we don't like bad Bible around here. It's not so good. Okay, let's, talk, let's, look at, uh, let's look at Saul. Saul was a man who knew his own crimson and the reality of its impact on his life perhaps better than anyone else. The first time we meet Saul is in uh, the book of Acts chapter 7 when he is holding the coats for some very religious men who are throwing stones at the first martyr in the Bible, Stephen. And Stephen is dying and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And Saul, who was raised in the church, educated in the church, believes that Jesus has come to destroy the church, which in a sense he did, for it was rebuilt in his name and his likeness. But these men are of the old covenant ways, and they begin to stone Stephen, who cries out to God, and it says that Saul went around as a young man and collected their coats as a sign of respect, and probably in his mind so they wouldn't get blood on them. And he's watching and he's participating in this death. And it encouraged him. This death encouraged him so much that he went to the city council and asked if he could go out and gather more Christians to be murdered. Like he enjoyed it so much that he was like, we should do that again. We should do that again. And so he goes forward, Acts 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what Christianity was called, the way, men or women, he might bring them and bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he is actively engaging in attacking Jesus and Jesus' mission. The ESV that I just read renders the verse threats and murder. Something is kind of lost in that reference because what we need to realize is that Saul isn't just out there, you know, like, like, like being a cyber bully, which is a big deal, but that's not what he's doing. He's actually rounding up people and bringing them to actual executions, all in the name of holiness, all in the name of goodness. In other words, and I'll put this on the screen, Paul's crimson was both great and grand. Paul's crimson was both great and grand. I just want to say something to everybody in the room who relates to living a life convicted by the Holy Spirit who feels like their crimson is great and grand. Welcome. This is exactly where you're supposed to be. This place should be full of people who've realized their crimson is both great and grand. And Paul, Saul is just a picture of how Jesus unfolds himself to those people. It says that Saul gets his letters, gets his company of men, and goes out a-hunting. Verse 3, Jesus shows up, chapter 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, I'm going to continue on in this story, and then what I'm going to do is tie back into the story all of us and how this is very intentionally written and very intentionally uh, acted out in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for our own sake. So we know this. Saul's now been, uh, he's been slain in a sense. He's been blinded. He's been convicted. And then he is brought to the house of someone he doesn't know. Here's the one thing I want to say about the, um, the conversion of Saul and how important this is for us as Christians. And I'm going to read some stuff that I stole. One commentator said, the most important event, think about this, in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. The most important event, other than Jesus, that has happened to humanity is the verse I just read, according to this commentator. Here's why. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would be missing 13 of 27 books of the New Testament and Christianity's early major expansion to the Gentiles. Yeah. 13 of the books he wrote. And he wrote them to us. People outside the Jewish faith, most of them. Humanly speaking, just humanly speaking, without Paul, without Paul Christianity would probably be only antiquarian or arcane interests, like the Dead Sea Scrolls community or the Samaritans. That's how important the passage you just read is to your historical faith journey. So Saul is now drugged to a house of someone he doesn't know. He's sitting in blindness. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's trying to figure out what it is that God wants to teach him inside the darkness. And inside the darkness, something happens to him. This dawning realization happens to him. Though his life was lived in zeal for the one true God, suddenly he knows that he has in reality been living in ignorance and unbelief. This is... This is So there's people that, that don't realize, or there's people that realize their darkness is both, what did I say, great and grand, okay? We know it. We sit in it. Matter of fact, if we're not careful, we begin to be filled with shame by it. I've made so many mistakes. I did, never thought I would be here. I never thought I would do this. I can't believe this is my life. Then there's people who have no idea of the great need of God and walk around their life blindly, living every single day as if they are the answer to everyone's problems, including their own. These are called people full of ignorance and unbelief. These are people who have no idea that there's more to life than just building huge barns. These are people that are also usually the most shattered when tragedy happens. They can't believe it would happen to them. These are people who don't take... Uh, responsibility very easy, and these are people who basically say, you need to figure out life, grab it by the horns, and overcome it, and build something worth leaving to the next generation. That's their good deed. Paul was both of these people. He was someone with incredible crimson, and he was someone whose crimson was kind of hidden and quiet and was sort of, sort of packaged in a really neat way that made him look like somebody who was effective and efficient. But in reality, he was really just filled with his own self-satisfaction and his own desire to be more than he was. Now, I don't know which kind of person you are, but I guarantee you, you're one of them. I know I am. You're one of them. 
We're all one of them. Now, the crimson people, the real, the real seen crimson, the public crimson, they have no problem with what I just said. As a matter of fact, they're like, that's me. That's me. Okay, good. Then you know. These people are wondering if I'm even preaching truth. They're like, what? Is he trying to say that? What? I do not relate or connect to what he's saying right now. I mean, I know that I need God. I get that. But, but I don't know. As a matter of fact, I was beautiful. I had a man in the back tell me just after service, very authentically, very honestly. Listen, I came to Christ when I was four. And after that, it's been pretty much all good. Scary. I think that's the word I used. Scary. And you know what he said? You're right. Because you settle into that stuff. You settle in believing you're enough. You settle in thinking, well, I go to Sunday. Like, I mean, I, I attend at least 20 sermons a year, and I'm there every Christmas and Easter. Amen. And I love you being here every Christmas and Easter. I'd love it more if every Christmas and Easter, the story of Christmas busted open your heart, and the story of Easter brought it all back together. Wouldn't that be cool? You're like, wait a minute, Christmas, that's what Christmas is about? Then you know who you are now. You know who you are. And it's okay. Neither is better or worse. Neither is better or worse. Because here's the thing. When you're self-satisfied and living in this kind of way, you are kind of ignorant and living in disbelief to what it is God wants to accomplish. And so you are numb usually to the needs of people around you. You're fairly self-focused, which makes you very selfish. These people also have another problem. Because they'll live in so much shame that they become unproductive altogether. They can't do anything. They're afraid their crimson might spill out. Oh, you can't have me do that. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know. I'm like, well, have you murdered anyone in the name of Jesus lately? No, I haven't done that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it, it, this is apparently kind of like, like some baseline thought processes for us to spring from, which is Saul, who is both, okay? He's a person with great crimson, and he's a person of unbelievable efficiency and great religion and discipline. He's both things, and there's a reason he's both. And it's because it's a picture of you and me, which I'm going to give away if I'm not careful. It's a picture of you and me. Both sides brought together in darkness. Both sides brought together in blindness. Paul himself, by the way, in case you were wondering, uh, does he think that he is a person of ignorance and unbelief? Yes, he does. 1 Timothy 1.13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Here's what I love. He actually describes both sides. He says, at one point, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Have you ever heard anybody describe themselves in such a horrible way? Like, hey, how'd you do last week? I was a blasphemer last week, an insolent opponent of the Lord. I did some bad things, got some people killed. And then all of a sudden he says, but I was also worshiping, I was also doing good. How could you do that? Because I was ignorant and living a life of unbelief. He is us. And you're going to see as this journey continues just how well it ties to our story. As Saul deeply considers all of this, he finally accepts the divine perspective on his actions and that his whole spiritual world is about to be turned upside down. And that's when God sends a man to his rescue. And I love this story because I think it's one of those passages we just blow through and we don't actually stop and put ourselves in the place of this poor man, Ananias. Verse 10, there's a man taking a nap. It's a calm day quiet breeze. You can hear the seagulls outside because everything in this part of the world is on the ocean. 
He's lived a good life. He's following Jesus. He helps the church, but not a lot of people know about it, and he likes it that way. Jesus comes to him in a dream, which who wouldn't want that? How good is this? It's my time. Jesus comes to everybody powerful in a dream. Now he's about to come to me. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. It's a stolen quote from an earlier passage in case you wondered. Because everybody steals everything, I'm just telling you. And the Lord said to him, Ananias, (laughs) rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. At this point, Ananias' smile got turned upside down. For he knows who Saul is. The whole world knows who Saul is. And Saul's the last person you want to go preach to. And this dream just turned into a nightmare instantly. He said of Saul, he is praying and he has seen a vision. And I love, I let's love this. He says, he saw a vision hmm, of a man named Ananias <laughs> who would come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I think there might have been a little pause here. For Ananias responds respectfully, but with strong question. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. He's kind of (laughs) evil. He's done a lot of bad things. And he's done this to your saints at Jerusalem. And also where you're sending me? He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So not only are you sending me to him, you're sending me to him in a place that he has authority from the world to hurt me. But the Lord said to him, go. I think there may have been a little pause there as well. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. See, what God does oftentimes is he brings people into our lives to combine our two different stories, to combine our story of great shame and our story of great pride into one single story of who we're supposed to be. Maybe today for some of you, I... I want to gently and lovingly uh, offer that perhaps today for some of you, I am your Ananias. For some of you, you've been living a long time doing stuff you know you're not supposed to be doing. And now that stuff has brought about so much shame in your life that you don't feel like you could ever get back to even a place of grace and love that God has for you. You feel like you're beyond his forgiveness or his healing. For others, you've been living a life of complete mediocrity and self-centeredness. You are your own God. I'm here to tell you today, if you don't surrender that place, it will be ripped from you upon the day you die. You will not get you very far in the afterlife. 
you have a choice to allow the scales of your shame and the scales of your pride to fall from your face. You have a choice to live your life in such a way that you are combined into one broken, busted, beautiful person. You have a choice to partake in the nourishment of this life, to be baptized if you never have been, to remember your baptism if you have been, and to come up a new creature, a new creation, just like this man. This man from here changed everything about his life. When you look at the, uh, the first part of, last part of verse 19, it says, for some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. This is directly after God combines his people, if you would, into one. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. By proving that Jesus was the Christ. All of his story changed. All of his story merged. Everything he thought he was and everything he actually was came together to become who he is. How unbelievable would it be if everything you thought you were that you're so embarrassed about and everything you actually are that you don't even know about could combine together to become who you really are supposed to be. This is what the gospel does. It breaks forth the barriers that allow us to separate, to pretend, to stand on stages and proclaim we're something we're not. It allows us to say openly and honestly, I'm as busted as any person in this room, but I've got a job to do and it is to preach the gospel and I'm gonna do it every single Sunday, 35 minutes at a time. After that, I don't know. It makes me the same as you and it makes me different than you. You are the same as me and you are different than me. You have a mission and a job and God has called you. But you keep living your life between these two different facets. No wonder nobody can keep up with your thinking. No wonder I'm always in therapy trying to get help for my thinking because I'm trying to combine my story, my childhood with my adulthood with, do you know just recently for the first time in my life, I actually considered the reality I might make it to be an old man? True story, you guys like, what are you doing in your 70? And I'm like, 70? Dude, I, 70? You know what happens as a sick kid? You just don't think you're going to make it past the next birthday. So you drive too fast. You spend too much money. You do things you shouldn't because this is the only life you have. Then suddenly you're 40 years old going, whoa, I got a lot of tickets and I should have more cash. <laughs> and it's like, well, what are you going to do in your 50s? And I'm like, I, I could make it to 50, maybe 60. I should probably think this through a little bit. <laughs> this is why we got to live our lives asking people, asking scripture, asking spirit, what is it, God, you have for me? What is the future you've unpacked for me? The beauty of this story plays out simply and quickly in this. It's a picture of all of us and our salvation and transformation journeys. We all start off like Saul with this epidemic of self-satisfaction. All of us, every person in this room, at one point or another has thought, I think I can do this. The reality is though, when the car pulls in front of you or the, the log starts coming off the rails over the roller coaster, we all cry out to the same one creator, oh God. 
We all cry out to the same one when we're sitting in that bed and we're getting ready to breathe our last and wondering what's next. Oh God, all of us start off with this epidemic of self-satisfaction and if we're not careful, we will fall into it and we will live our lives by it. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Listen to this description of what these people are like. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Stop buying into other people with lowercase g's above their name. You're not God. They're not God. They don't have answers. And when the wheels come off, the only one that does is our creator in heaven. At this point, you have a choice because God eventually at one point will arrest your heart. The same as he arrested Paul's. God's sovereign grace always arrests, John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. From here, you have a decision to make. For you will fall like I will fall into a place of great darkness that is entered into where I can reflect upon my life and my decisions. This is what really happens when people finally come to Christ. They sit in a place where they realize they can't come to themselves anymore. And they grieve this loss of my own ideas and my own thoughts and the stuff that they've grasped that doesn't satisfy. It's in this place a person is left with no more satisfying answers, but instead is left only with questions. Like, how did I get here? What happens now? And who can save me? These are the questions Saul is asking. Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. Ah, this is a beautiful, horrible place to find yourself. To realize that God has arrested you, that he has caused you to look within and you see nothing, that he's caused you now to look out and ask for help because it is only in this place that you can then experience the rescuing of Jesus. For there, Jesus Christ makes himself known and rescues. 2 Samuel 22, 17 and 18, he sent from on high. He took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. When you explain and exclaim your weakness, God shows up in his strength. When we accept what's next, that's when fruit really begins to happen. When we accept that our lives are going to be turned inside out and transformed. That God is not going to do it in this kind, soft, gentle, PC way that you want. That's why I think this church, if you were to ask me one simple thing, why this church is developing it's because in every area of this church people are being brutally honest about the what the gospel requests and requires it is not easy it does not sell well it's not fun all the time but it is life giving ezekiel 36 26 god says i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put with you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. He removes the heart of stone, the heart that doesn't care, the heart that's hard, the heart that's prideful, the heart that doesn't, that doesn't feel when your wife cries herself to sleep at night or your husband worries about why you aren't coming home. It, that he removes this heart of insensitivity and he puts in a heart that is hurtable, a flesh heart, a heart that can be killed. He replaces that 
And he says, now go out. What did he say was going to happen to Saul? He was going to suffer for my sake as he lived out the transformational experience of all Christians who would follow him. We suffer when we hurt for this world, when we hurt for our friends, when we watch our children go wayward and make mistakes that bring scars upon their lives. We suffer, we suffer, we suffer, but it is what we are called to do. For in the end, like Saul, we are forever found and saved. Isaiah 43, my God says to you today, I will give up whole nations to save your life because you are precious to me. Because I love you and I give you honor, do not be afraid. I got you. (laughs) I am here for you. How encouraging is it to know that our God can turn even his fiercest enemy, Saul, into his most willing servant. If he can do that, guys, what excuse do you have to keep living your life the way you're living it? Too much shame, too much pride, come on. This is why the journey is laid out in paper for us so that we can see that there is no excuse not to come to Christ, not to be found by him and not to receive his encouragement, his love, and his grace. One of my favorite quotes I stole from a man I got to spend some time with, a grandfather, his name is Rick Rousseau. He may watch the sermon because I told him I was going to steal it and use it and not give him credit, although I, I just did. He was sitting and he was sharing about his grandkids and he was sharing about this church and the future of the church in this world and he goes, there'll always be a church and there'll always be a need for people who take doing and being a part of and living out church seriously. You know why? And I said, no. And he goes, I know why, because I'm a grandpa. I got grandkids. I go, okay. And he goes, and we play a lot of games, my grandkids and I. And I said, yeah. And he goes, and I just realized something recently. When it comes to that game hide and seek, he said, The goal of hide-and-seek with all small children isn't to stay hidden. They all want to be found. All people, Danny, at their core, they want to be found. Maybe today's your opportunity to be found. Maybe today you thought that the Crimson Emblem, put up the other one for me if you would, you thought the Crimson Emblem was about your stain against all the good holiness of God, when in reality... It was much more about what's back here on this TV and will transform up here. It's much more about God making you something new in the midst of all the mistakes you've made. This is what God is offering. This is what God is pleading with you to accept. This world is going to eat you up. But God is saying, I am stronger, I am bigger. Like those kids, I'm good, I'm holy, I will protect you if you come running to me, no matter your crimson, no matter your pride, no matter your story, I want you to be mine. I'm going to ask everyone's heads to bow and eyes to close. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have never proclaimed his name over your life, I'm going to give you that opportunity right now in a quite simple and gentle way. Just come before him in your heart and say, God, it's me. I'm here. I'm tired of running this way. I'm tired of living this way. 
I want to do different. I want to be different. I'm too ashamed. I'm too prideful. But I know that the grace and power of your cross poured over my life can make it all new, can make it all clean. Though I am red as crimson, you can make me as white as freshly fallen snow. Please come into my heart, Lord. Please forgive me of my sins. Make me whole. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. While away, I got the opportunity to go to a church service. This doesn't happen very much for, for me, to just go and sit in a church service. And my wife and I went, and we had a great time. And, but it was really the, the song at the end they sang. It was a song you sang just last week about our God. It's the song that that verse that I said was on my wall. Our God is like a lion. He protects us. He brings encouragement to us and hope to us and so I asked the team if we could sing it again and so I'm going to have you stand and as you bring your worship and bring your praise to God let's just bring our songs let's receive from him this truth this reality that he is this protector that he is this good father that he is something that can keep us that can hold us that can love us and that can forgive us let's just worship him now Let's bring glory to our Heavenly Father.
many of you believe? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Amen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For who can stop the Lord? 